Well, good morning. My name is uh, Pastor Sam. I serve here as the assistant pastor here at Arise Church. Uh, we are in a teaching series, Armor of God. We've been wrestling with this question, why do we need protection? Why do we need to put on this armor that God gives us? And uh, we started a couple of weeks ago talking about who the enemy is, uh, about uh, the dark spiritual forces uh, that are raging war on us. And uh, last week, Pastor Jim uh, taught on truth. And he talked about a couple of things. Uh, the problem of truth and uh, f- trying to find truth and the challenges in that. He talked about the power of truth, uh, the amazing positive things when you do find the truth and what that does for your life, but then how truth is uh, c- corrupted by Satan and lies and how we can, the power of truth then becomes, uh, turns against us. And then he talked about the person of truth who is Jesus. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the breastplate of righteousness. Um, and you've got to say that very slow. It becomes a tongue twister otherwise. And then we're going to look at what it is, uh, how does it actually protect us, how does, it, how does that work, the dangers in it, and then we're going to finish up with actually walking through how do we receive this? How do we put on this righteousness? Uh, but before we do that, would you guys pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, pray that uh, you would just hide me behind the cross this morning. Would you clothe me in humility? Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say? Would we have eyes to see what you are teaching us. May we receive uh, what you want this morning, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with the question, what is the breastplate of righteousness? What exactly is this thing? Uh, The breastplate of righteousness actually first gets revealed in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 59 uh, in verse 17 and what's happening right now uh, in Isaiah is it is evil. There is darkness. Uh, it says that uh, righteousness is not reaching people. There's no justice anywhere. Uh, those who are trying to shun evil, uh, those who are innocent are being preyed upon and that uh, they're <laughs> just being killed. And it says that God looked. All right, who's going to come and defend People. Who's going to bring about justice? Who's going to bring righteousness to the people? And it says there was no one to be found. And that God was appalled. And so in verse 17, he says, So he put on the righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And so God reveals that this righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness is his. And he puts it on because God is a warrior God. He's a God of action. And that in when there's darkness, when there is sin, when, when there's no justice, when there's no righteousness, when there's innocent people getting preyed upon, we need to put on righteousness. God reveals that to us. He shows us that. So uh, a breastplate uh, was a piece of armor back in uh, ancient days. You don't really see that around here too often because we don't really have a whole lot of sword fighting going on and spears. This is what it would have looked like. This would have been something, a huge piece of metal. It would have been very heavy, um, sometimes 30 plus pounds 
uh, and it was there to protect uh, the torso, that especially the chest cavity, um, from essentially getting pierced, uh, from being destroyed, sometimes front and back. And so they would, uh, soldier, professional soldiers, would have uh, these on all the time. You can survive a cut to your arm, but you can't quite survive a cut to the heart. And so this was a crucial piece or element to uh, an everyday soldier. Uh, anyone living in these times would have seen what that looked like. Man, this, when it's, we're not talking about something uh, like a little foam piece. We're talking about something heavy, solid, strong, something that uh, will not get pierced. And so I was thinking, uh, man, what would like a modern day take on that? And because I, you know, coming from the trades, I only have trade analogies. And so I was thinking about a high-vis vest. Now, this isn't quite as thick of a material, this piece of armor, but why would somebody wear this? Why would, it, why would you walk around a job site with this on? So people can see you, so you don't get crushed by giant machinery or a crane or something that you are visible, that, hey, I have something over me that makes you aware I am here. And if I don't want to get crushed, uh, and i got to put something on that prevents that from happening. And so you put on uh, a high-vis vest for protection so that you don't get squished like a bug against machinery. And so uh, this goes along that we see protecting your heart uh, is something that... Uh, we see all over the Word of God, and in Proverbs uh, 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And so there is physical protection that in, is in this analogy, but really what's getting into this is spiritual protection. This is where it starts. The armor of God is spiritual in nature. So then we have to wrestle with the question then, Okay, that's what the, the breastplate is. But what is righteousness? See, righteousness is not a religious word. It's not something that we've come up with. It, righteousness is actually a human being thing. Because uh, righteousness is defined as a moral, being morally correct or moral correctness. Uh, in other words, righteousness would be considered right living. It equals right living. So according to something... Every human being has, according to something, uh, there's a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live. Uh, upside way to do things and there's a upside down way of doing things. There is uh, what is considered uh, rightness and there's considered what is wrongness. We all as a human being are shaped and formed by that. We have a moral compass that tells us what that is. And then for us, the, the church, we say God's word. God reveals what righteousness is. He is who righteousness is. And so our understanding of what is right living, what is holy, what is good, and it teaches us then what is evil, what is unrighteous, what is bad. It's not a, uh, something that only Christians get or receive. We all have our own view of understanding of what is right upside living what is upside down wrong living so how then does the righteousness of god this view of up living protect uh, our heart how does that actually happen so in proverbs 13 uh, verse 6 
uh, says, Righteousness guards the person of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. So there is some outward protection for the person with integrity that righteousness protects the hearts that go forward. So uh, one of the common examples I think about is uh, the veterans of World War II. Before Pearl Harbor, it was actually most Americans did not want to enter the war. Nazi Germany, that's, that's Europe's problem. Imperial Japan, that's Asia's problem. We, we, we aren't there. We should not go to war. Then, as you guys know, history happens. Pearl Harbor's attacked. The United States enters World War II, declares war in Germany, all that, yada, yada, yada. But think about the thousands of lives that were killed, and you're asking soldiers, young men, to go and fight in the battle and see atrocities, horrors, um, and did they, were they right in doing so? Yeah, and especially when they started looking at concentration camps and they saw just the horrors done against society that needed to be stopped, that evil needed to be stopped. They, they were right, and they had integrity to say, no, we need to rise up and prevent this from happening. And so there is righteousness, right way of living to go, and that protects us, that, man, was that worth the cost? And they would say yes. Now, other wars in American history? I don't know. But for that one, very clear of, man, there was evil happening in the world, and the young men rose up and fought even uh, with all the chaos that war uh, brings. There's outward protection. Uh, but there's more than just that. There's inward protection. Jesus is, res- uh, we're in uh, Mark chapter 7. Uh, Jesus has been asked, what defiles a person? Essentially, uh, the Pharisees and then his disciples are trying to get clarity. Hey, what it makes somebody unholy? What makes someone unrighteous? What makes someone that upside-down living. They're a little confused because uh, Jesus wasn't following this law, this man-made law, really perfectly. And so they're like, man, what makes someone <laughs> defile themselves? Like, what is someone who is unrighteous? And he explains what defiles a person. In verse 20, he says, uh, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. So Jesus is revealing that the thing we're trying to protect our heart is also where evil comes from. Those evil thoughts and actions flow out of us. So it's not necessary the other way around. Uh, righteousness does not protect you from those things happening around you. Uh, it does not protect you from lies or uh, the brokenness. All those things are happening ar- from around you. It protects you from those things coming out of you. That's, there's an inward defense to righteousness, an inward protection of your heart. Because we go back to, again, why are we putting on this armor? See, when you live unrighteously, we go upside down living. When we live unrighteous, we are inviting the enemy to have influence in our lives. Uh, When we live in sin, we are inviting uh, what the enemy desires for us to take root and to manifest itself more and more and more and more. And so 
you, when you open your heart, again, to receive what the enemy has uh, for you, you lose that righteousness, that protection. So it means you can't pray against the enemy. You can't pray uh, that Satan and the demonic and temptation leave you alone if you are already living out what they desire for you. And you can't confess something is a struggle. Uh, maybe to somebody, confess to God, and that's a struggle. It's a struggle for months and months, years and years and decades without actually naming what it is, a stronghold the enemy has built in your light if you're not going to go and combat it. And you can't let the truth, the person of Jesus, set you free unless you're willing to name the lies, the chains that you are being held by. And that righteousness is not going to protect you unless you're willing to put that on and deal with uh, the unrighteous, the unholiness, the evil wickedness that has taken root in the human heart. Uh, so let me give you an example. If somebody had a big cut on their leg and it got infected, and they're like, that's okay, though, maybe I can get the bleeding to stop, and they never deal with the infection, no one would say, oh, yeah, that's totally fine. You'd say, you need to go deal with what is killing and causing chaos and decaying your flesh, the thing that's going to kill you. You would say, you have to go after that infection. And when you live unrighteously, that is opening yourself up for infection to take place. And so righteousness then uh, uh, protects you from the infection spreading and it protects you from those um, unrighteous opportunities, those cuts into your heart to take place. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, and I'm going to kind of walk through my sexual brokenness and understanding how living unrighteous and living righteous and how that kind of protects the human heart. So my story with pornography starts when I was probably 12, 13 years old and finding access to the internet and uh, finding pornography and then being caught because I'm not too clever of a 13 year old kid by my parents. And so my parents would say, all right, like, all right, it was like you got restriction, no internet for X amount of months, all this kind of stuff. Um, this is bad. And that was it. Okay, so then uh, time goes on. I get access to the internet again because my parents don't want me to live in a bubble. And a uh, stressed out teenage boy, guess what he's going to go find? More pornography. And now there's a pattern starting to develop. Once again, because teenagers aren't that clever, sorry guys, I get caught again, except this time, all right, now I got punished again, except then this time you got to go tell someone. you got to go obviously what we're talking with you isn't working so oh, okay so I work up the courage I'm gonna have to go talk to my youth pastor I have this big like pit in my stomach oh my god I have to get it out there to this guy who I greatly you know respect he's helping me a lot and I tell him all right I've, I've, I'm, I'm struggling with this pornography issue uh, and he says okay so next time you tempt it all I do is I think about Jesus on the cross so next time you're in temptation that's all you gotta think about Jesus hanging on the cross for your sin, and the temptation will go away. Um, and that was it. He never followed up with me again. So uh, that, all right, thing about Jesus on the cross lasted like three seconds, and uh, I'm back into the same broken pattern. Now this living unrighteously is developing in my life, and now this infection is growing and growing and growing. Even though I'm like, I did the things the Bible said, right, about confessing your sin and I was praying about it, 
and yet this infection is growing. Graduated high school, now it's bad. Now there's no accountability in my life, and now this thing is really taking root. Um, and I got engaged and got married, and I thought my marriage will fix my pornography addiction. Surprisingly, did not. I was shocked. And so I woke up kind of one day and recognized I'm in trouble. I live like uh, on the outside. I try and project everything's fine and good. But my interior world is a mess. I am in big, big trouble. This un- that unrighteousness, making those wrong, tr- living that upside-down life, has created this huge infection, and I don't know how to get rid of it. Even though I tried to do what the Bible said and what uh, spiritual shepherds or people guiding me in my life said to do, it's still a problem. See, what I fail to realize is whose righteousness is this to begin with? It's not my own. This is God's righteousness. So my story doesn't end there, thankfully. It ends with uh, discipleship and growing, growing closer to the person and character of Jesus and saying, Lord, um, I'm a sinner and I don't got this. I need you to change my heart, which is a very scary prayer to pray for those who have prayed. It's terrifying. I recommend it. Uh, it's super fun. But when you begin to recognize, man, there's nothing I can do to fix what is happening. This unrighteousness has created a stronghold for the enemy. And there's only one way for righteousness to regain protection in my life. And so that's what has happened. So that's a little bit, again, that's how righteousness is protecting our hearts. And that's just one area of life. Uh, but it can be so many things, betrayal of a friend, lies, gossip. Uh, all those things that creep into our lives without us knowing it, and they will take hold of you, and they will build strongholds in your life. But pursuing righteousness actually is extremely dangerous. And so we need to talk about some of the dangers of righteousness uh, that the Bible uh, reveals and talks about, and we need to understand the difference between the two. So a uh, couple of different types of righteousness. There is the self-righteous so what is a self-righteous person? Um, usually it's easy to identify in other people. And we would say it's de- defined as uh, convinced, someone's convinced of one owns rightness, especially in contrast to others. So that is saying, I don't know what else is out there that says right or wrong, but I am now grabbing control of it. And I am taking that authority and I'm placing it on myself. I now have the authority of what's right and wrong, and you do not. And so, therefore, I am right and you are wrong. And the problem with that is now who becomes the judge? And who becomes uh, the person who uh, dishes out the wrath? And usually a self-righteous person comes out of a great place, of a deep place of hurt a deep place of something that's hurt inside of you, a deep place of hurt even in somebody else, someone you love or care about. And that comes out of, uh, God, you are not just, because you are not doing right right here. You did not defend me, or you did not defend this person I care about, so therefore I need to show you what righteousness is, what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust. And you take that authority and you place that mantle 
upon yourself because you are now going to stop hurting in your life and you are now going to stop hurting in other people. And it takes root and uh, does incredible damage uh, to relationships, to people, to community. There's great danger in being self-righteous. The second danger of righteousness is cultural righteousness. We would ask the question, well, what is cultural righteousness? And this is where we would see uh, our current culture define for us what is right and wrong in the world. Right now, there's a massive shift happening in our culture that we live in uh, on righteousness, and we need to be aware of that so we don't get deceived by our culture into thinking that uh, being able to understand the difference between what our culture is saying is righteousness versus what is God is saying is righteousness. And if we're not aware of what the world defines righteousness as or what is happening, it can leak into our understanding and betray us into thinking that we understand what is right or wrong. And it becomes dangerous, especially if there's somebody we respect, um, especially at a distance, uh, an important figure with influence, power, maybe a politician, maybe a celebrity, somebody if they are especially someone we agree a lot with, we will often say, man, I agree with them on so many things. I'm just going to assume their righteousness that they're talking about, what is right and wrong in the world, what is right living, what is upside down living is correct. And I'm going to go and agree with them and follow what they are saying. Um, and so there is danger that we can be deceived into thinking we are getting a good understanding of righteousness and wrong. So big shift happening in our culture's righteousness. Uh, we, use, we live in the Western culture, a Western way of thinking and understanding, and Western way of thinking is righteousness has always been around more of a, uh, a courtroom of what is black and white, what is scientific, uh, that in type of enlightenment idea of thinking is that scientifically we can find out what is something that's good and what is something that is bad, and we can collect facts and data, and that is how uh, what is right, uh, and usually valued around human individual rights, was valued. And that's how our court systems and all that kind of stuff got set up. That's changing. Right now, we're moving to what's considered a little more Eastern, uh, where we're becoming a lot more of a shame and honor culture. And the reason we're seeing a lot of these shifts is because of, honestly, media, social media in general, and uh, things like tribalism and stuff like that. Because what's beginning to take place is, uh, instead of righteousness, right upside down living, being established in local uh, relationships, face to face, uh, face to face uh, interactions in communities, um, what is right and wrong in the world is now being established by noise, by crowds of people on the internet. And so what you'll see is, um, my tribe or the people I associate with on the internet uh, have it right, and the people uh, on, on the internet uh, who disagree, they have it wrong. And so now, in order for me to communicate why we are right and they are wrong, I need to weaponize something, and so we weaponize shame, and we throw it at the other group that disagrees with us. And so Ed, I don't have a relationship with them. But it's easy because I think I have connection. And so we begin to weaponize and we throw shame back and forth at each other on a very macro level. That macro level of throwing shame is now becoming 
more and more micro and it's beginning to uh, show up more and more in our everyday living and everyday culture. And so understanding of what shame is, uh, what is an uh, honor in that society is highly important because there's now new definitions of right and wrong. There's a new way of thinking, especially in a younger generation, that this is what righteousness looks like and this is what unrighteousness looks like. It's not scientific. It's not let's gather all the facts, let's have a debate, let's uh, be civil about it. It is who can use their shame to out-leverage the other person's shame. So what if he comes? Give me, I'll give you an example. Is what, that's what our politics has become. When you're a political party and you have control of our government, uh, you are setting uh, the line of what is righteousness, and you are saying this is what right living looks like and this is what wrong living looks like. And when you define that with your politics and ideology, you have to justify why this is correct, why this is wrong. You now have to defend your point. And so in order to defend why your political party views something some this way, again, I have to use shame or guilt or other methods to cut down people who oppose this idea or who are trying to resist my idea and to get it across. And so when we enter next year's political season, uh, in the name of righteousness, both sides will cut each other down. Both sides will tear at each other. And because they're both right in their own mind, they're going to try and wrestle each other for control. And if we're not careful, we get caught up in that game. Because if we associate with one a little bit more than the other, uh, I'll just start listening for what this party says or what this party says. And in the name of being right, I'll use whatever tactic uh, that my party's using and go along with it. And we get put into this game of shame and honor uh, in our politics and we lose because we're now chasing political righteousness instead of godly righteousness. And I share that with you because I see that far, far too often. It doesn't take long going on the internet. It doesn't take long listening to whatever show, whatever media. And this is the type of language they use. This is the type of posture people hold. Uh, because when there is no demonic in your life, you need to demonize someone else. And so that is what you begin to see in our culture. And, and that's why we need to be aware of what does our culture say is righteousness? And we need to reject that and receive what God says is righteousness. So that way, when we enter the political realm, we can use wisdom and discernment and understanding of what God is teaching us in that moment, not what we think it is. This leads us into the third type of righteousness, which we call religious righteousness. So what is religious righteousness? What is this a word we typically use to describe it as pharisaical? Uh, or a, tip, uh, hip, um, a rule maker, uh, something like that. Um, and for us to understand what religious uh, righteousness is, we need to take a little bit closer look uh, into some scripture and what Jesus taught uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 20. Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching on kingdom of heaven and its relationship to the law. Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And he ends with uh, verse 20, he says, Matthew 5, verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So at first glance, he goes, huh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus, you say, um, you've come to fulfill the law, which is what the Pharisees all seem to be about. And you've said, man, in order for me to enter uh, the kingdom of heaven, I need to be more righteous than the Pharisees. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was showing them that the righteousness of Pharisees, uh, the scribes, uh, the writers of the law, as he's calling them, has to go beyond what their view of righteousness was. Because Pharisees and religious rulers cared about outward action and not about inward heart. This is what uh, Dallas Willard's words on Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees. This is what he writes. He says, when he confronted them, them being the Pharisees, with a law that was truly God's, they each in their own way flunked the test that they professed to have passed. But this does not least detract from the fact that God's law is unspeakably good and a precious thing, and that to live within it is to live the life that is eternal. To be sure, the law is not the source of rightness, but it is forever the course of rightness. Let's think about that for a moment. The reason the Pharisees got so off, um, so crazy, I guess, off track, is because they looked at the law, the thing that God showed them of what is right living, what is righteous living, and they said, man, that must be then the source of what is righteous and what is good. And so we need to pursue that. Some context understanding who, why the Pharisees want uh, Israel at the time to be so righteous and holy is it because they really cared about people's hearts and transforming lives and that people would know Yahweh? Not at all. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone this week on this. The Pharisees were a group of people who were thinking, man, uh, we are being ruled by Rome. God must be angry with us. And so in order for God's blessing and uh, to come up again back in the kingdom of Israel, in order for God to return and for the Romans to be overthrown and to leave, we must live uh, very holy and reverent lives to God. And so if there was a line, this is what the law said, they're like, man, we got to make sure people don't cross that line so God will be happy with us. So they drew another human line a little bit farther away. And not only did they draw one or two, they drew thousands of extra laws that they had to follow so that there'd be this really awesome, righteous-looking people, and God would be so happy with them, and he would send the Messiah, and they would overthrow the Romans, and they would, God, you know, God would come, and it would be really great and grand. So the Pharisees didn't really care about their lives, about people's lives, and they just cared about overthrowing the Romans. And so in pursuit of righteousness, this religious righteousness, uh, they became uh, the, these human-made laws or rulers. So when you do that, you create an environment where all the leaders, the people telling you, hey, this is right and this is wrong, have to look really good, have to look perfect on the outside, like shiny, perfect, and look how amazing I am. And again, in order to justify this exterior of looking pristine and awesome um, and not dealing with the issues of the heart, I need to make sure that you see me this way and that way. In order for you to see me this way, you need to feel shameful or guilty all the time. So they created this shame and honor culture part of their religion. 
is that they would shame people who don't follow the law uh, because you essentially are saying, um, you are the reason why God's not here, and I am the reason God just needs to come back. And that creates a whole lot of power play and dimensions going on, which kind of creates a question. Why is that so powerful? Why is religious righteousness so powerful and so easily um, fallen in for? Because at first you're like, man, why would you want to follow a bunch of rules? Who would agree to that? Like, because that sounds dumb. At least that's me. That's just how I, th- I don't like rules. But because, here's why, uh, it is because religious righteousness, being pharisaical, elevates yourself, fans your pride, says you are awesome and other people not so much. It promises you control. Sounds pretty good. Uh, there's fulfillment, there's affirmation in it, uh, there's power in it. You, are r- you have rightness over others. Uh, and honestly, that sounds pretty good. And that's pretty simple, too. It's not too complicated. Uh, and then you never have to deal with the uncomfortable, the uncomfortable things in your own flawed heart. You never have to deal with it. That sounds pretty good to me. And you can be zealous. You can be passionate. You can be super intense about rightness. Um, and if other people don't understand you, it's their fault because they're not righteous people. There's something wrong with them and not you. And it's sneaky because it that doesn't just happen overnight. You just don't wake up and think, man, I need to pursue God so much so and have all these live this perfect life so, uh, and, uh, so other people think I am awesome and they, they will see their own issues in their own heart because it slowly leaks in and it elevates you. And in a culture, in our American culture, we elevate the individual a lot. We're an individual, individualistic society and we champion you all the time and how special and amazing awesome you are and that is what also religious uh, righteousness can offer you champions the same thing and so we are ripe for the harvest for religious righteousness and that that there's probably more people walking around in America with a pharisaical spirit than there was back with Jesus walking around There is grave danger in that. And Jesus warns against his teaching all the time. And we need to take a humble approach to understanding this and not an arrogant one. So we do not let uh, that pride to think we have, it all it, we have it all figured out. We have all the outward actions done and we never address our heart issues. This is why we need God's righteousness. Because Satan and the demonic are looking for a stronghold in your life. They're looking for access. And if they cannot get you to do the downward living, if they cannot get you to live uh, in sin, if they cannot get you uh, to do uh, unholy things, then they will twist and corrupt your view of how righteous living looks so they can build a stronghold in your life. I said this a couple weeks ago that the dem- Satan and the demonic do not play fair. And th- uh, this is one of the reasons why this needs to be God's righteousness not our own. So if I go back to my story of battling my sexual brokenness, I needed God's righteousness, not my own. I I could not overcome this addiction on my own. This past week, I was camping with a guy who was going through his own battle with sexual brokenness and his own battle with addiction to pornography. 
And he was telling me, he goes, last week I was praying on the armor of God. And in that prayer, the Holy Spirit told me, you are going to face temptation this week. So he's ready. And he had uh, a really rough day. He found himself um, uh, taking care of uh, somebody else's uh, dog, and he had access to a computer with no accountability. He's super stressed out and feeling broken, and he just hears that Holy Spirit voice come back to him. That was the, and he just hears this temptation. He says, I started screaming at that screen, you don't own me. And he got to resist. He had a day of victory. He had a week of victory because he started with saying, Lord, I need your righteousness. And that's a man who's been battling this for decades. You can't do it on your own. We need God's righteousness. So how do you actually receive God's righteousness? How do you receive this breastplate of righteousness? In Ephesians uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 20, Paul's talking to the Ephesians, and he told them uh, about the people who don't know God and how they live. But he says to them in verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So righteousness, right living, uh, we see in verse uh, 21, starts with the person of Jesus. You can't use the law, which none of us like to read because we don't really understand it a lot of times, but you can't use that as your source of righteousness, but it will teach you the course of righteousness. Our source of righteousness needs to start with Jesus and what he's showing us on how to live in the world. That's where it starts. Uh, the amount of protection, the amount of righteousness you have in your life is, is directly correlated with how close and how intimate your relationship with Jesus is. They are tied together. In verse 23, let our minds be made new. So you've got to change the way we think about going about stuff. We've got to build new mental pathways. We've got to receive a new way of life. That is the invitation that God gives us. And then we need to clothe ourselves, clothe ourselves with God's desire for us. If you've received nothing this morning, if you've heard nothing else, maybe you need to receive this, that God's desire not your parents, not your spouse, not me. That's not where we start. You, righteousness, receiving righteousness starts because this is what God's desire for you is. God desires for you to be righteous and holy. We are created to be like him. This is something that God desires for his kids. Not some rule maker somewhere, not some authoritative law that's going to come and get you and but God desires for you to be righteous because there is protection from the enemy in righteousness. So some couple next steps for us to run with. First one being we have to practice carefully. 
Matthew 6, 1 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. You will not just say, man, I like righteousness. I like God's righteousness. This is good and great, and go have a, live it out perfectly. This actually takes practice. Um, it takes um, learning from Jesus and failing and asking for forgiveness and receiving what Jesus has for you in that. Uh, it takes place um, by yourself. It takes place in community. Um, but you need to be careful not to pursue righteousness so we fall into one of those traps uh, before us. Uh, second, we need to receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You can't get righteous on your own. It's actually a work of God. And God does uh, a work in you before he does a work through you. And we sometimes chase, we just want to do all the do, the upliving, and we put all our focus on the actions. That's what the Pharisees thought about. And they never thought about the heart. And if you want your actions to change, we need an inward change in our heart. And we need to receive, ask the Holy Spirit, would you come and change my heart? Because I can't. I'm, I need you in this. And this really starts with that third one, which is we need to pray righteousness into our lives. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It changes how we pray. It changes how we pray for ourselves. It changes how we pray for others. And when we pray protection, praying righteousness is a part of that, and that we would desire what God desires for us. Again, not to appease other people, not because we want to try and make God happy, but because this is a blessing God wants in your life. And he says, I'm offering it to you freely. Come and receive it. So would you guys pray, as me, pray with me as we close? Dearly Father, I pray that you would show us uh, the source of righteousness so that way we would know the course we need to take with it. Lord, when we study your word, we recognize that on our own, uh, we're going to fail. So, Lord, I pray for a spirit of humility to come upon us, to say, Lord, we can't, but you can And Lord, I pray against those enemy strongholds that have been built in times of unrighteousness in our lives. And in Jesus' name, I ask that you begin to bring those strongholds down. And that we would have grace and truth for each other as a community to walk with each other through those things. Lord, would you give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness so that the tiniest sin will bother us that the Holy Spirit won't leave us alone until it changes our hearts and we can receive what you have for us in this, Lord. Lord, I thank you for being a righteous God, that we don't have to figure this out on our own, that we don't have to be the ones who carry that mantle of authority to say this is right and this is wrong. Thank you that we can just turn to you, our Heavenly Father. And we give that to you, Lord.
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, uh, Pastor Joel uh, will be back, and he, and I think Becca, I don't know for sure, uh, will be able to share lots of stories and hear about what God has done uh, over the past three weeks uh, in their different ministries. So come back. Really excited for that. Would you guys uh, stand for the benediction? May you be blessed by the Lord's strength this week and in his righteousness and in his peace, uh, being present and filled with him. Amen. Have a good week, church.